Hello everyone, and welcome to the LubeCast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we have a really interesting discussion, and it's an extension of a show that we did back in December of 2013, so a while back. But there have been some new developments in media and with certain individuals that kind of can spark this conversation again, and it's the idea of what makes an expert an expert. So what is expertise? And we're looking at this talk from the idea of looking at Ben Rhodes. There was a great New York Times article that came out May 5th of this year, so 2016, and it was titled The Aspiring Novelist Who Became Obama's Foreign Policy Guru. It's a long piece, but it's really interesting, and it really sparks this conversation of how do we define expertise? What makes an expert? So today I'm really happy to have two of our longtime guests back on the show. So first of all, we have Tom Nichols, and he was on the previous show about what makes an expert. And Tom is a professor at the U.S. Naval War College and at Harvard Extension School. He's also a Sovietologist and a five-time undefeated Jeopardy! champion. So he's great. Um, we love having him on the show. And he also has a book coming out on this topic very soon, so look for that. And then our other longtime guest is David Gardenstein-Ross, and he is an American counterterrorism scholar and analyst. And he, in 2014, he became the CEO of Valens Global, which is a private company that consults on counterterrorism, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and insurgent groups. So look for his work there. And he is also at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies as a senior fellow. So we've got two great guests on this topic. So first of all, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to join you. Thanks for having me. For our listeners that might not know who Ben Rhodes is, because he is a character that's kind of at times behind the scenes, he is the <coughs> Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications, and he writes a lot of the president's speeches, plans his trips abroad, and runs the communications strategy across the White House. And he's been called the single most influential voice shaping American foreign policy aside from POTUS himself. So that's a big title that, right there. Why don't we get started off with this discussion? I will hand the floor over to you, Tom. What are your thoughts on this? Well, let's start with Ben Rhodes because Ben Rhodes is not actually an expert. I, that's not really the, the meat of the story that uh, came out in the New York Times Magazine when David Samuels wrote his piece on Rhodes. I think the thing about Rhodes and the way he dealt with the Iran deal, and probably the thing that David and I reacted most strongly to, is not that Rhodes was a poor expert or didn't understand the issues. It's the way Rhodes and the echo chamber, as he called it, warped the debate among experts by contaminating it, by injecting this political message into it, by injecting money into it, by injecting uh, political pressure into it to make what should have been a more principled and dispassionate argument among experts into what I personally, and these are all my personal views, obviously, what I personally see as an exercise in unbelievable political hackery. Um, Rhodes is a political guy. That's his job. He doesn't, Rhodes doesn't know any more or less than anybody else about national security. He started off on the Hill. He moved over to the White House. He has no real background in this stuff. 
Um, he, his expertise, insofar as he has one, is, is working for Democratic politicians. What Rhodes and the White House did, however, was to drag in experts into a debate that wasn't a real debate. And when it comes to the question of our discussion today about, you know, what are, what's an expert? What's their role in society? What are they supposed to do? Um, this was really damaging. This really damaged the credibility of experts because they basically went into the tank led into it by a political guy who in, you know, we can talk about some of the other organizations involved like Plowshares who worked with groups that spread a lot of money around and basically contaminated what should have been a, a more dispassionate debate about a really important foreign policy subject. And on that point, there's this quote in this New York Times article basically saying that in the spring of last year, legions of arms control experts began popping up at think tanks and on social media and then became key sources for hundreds of often clueless reporters. And they're quoting Rhodes saying, we created an echo chamber. He goes on to admit that they were saying things that validated what they had given them to say. And that's a huge statement. As you said, it's very much a very good political play for this Iran deal. So let's look at that a little bit. It's terrifying. I'll just leave it at that. It's terrifying. <laughs> and and David, you're you've been in the think tank world for years. How does that affect you and your thoughts as an expert at a think tank? It has a significant effect. I, I think it's worth starting with the difference between pushing a policy and uh, doing analysis because they're, they're very different things. Uh, I understand what Rhodes is saying. I, I don't fully agree with it, but I understand what he's saying in the piece, which is that he doesn't like the way he had to do things. He would prefer dispassionate debate but he feels that given the way our political system works, he's forced to push policies through this way. One can debate that point, but there's something else that's been going on for, for several years, much more intensely um, over the course of the past five years than I, I've ever seen it before. And that is political um, people in political positions pushing sets of fact, pushing analysis. Uh, the interesting thing to me, I, I'm not much uh, of a, an, an Iran guy, Iran influences uh, many of the areas that I study. I, I don't have expertise in Iran, though. Um, I, I study violent non-state actors. But what, what resonated to me about the piece is that what people described in terms of coming up against the echo chamber is precisely what I've experienced multiple times in studying al-Qaeda and affiliated movements with this line of analysis that has been heavily pushed by the administration, that being al-Qaeda strategic defeat. It hasn't borne out. And we've seen it rear its head multiple times. It reared its head when the Arab Spring hit for the first time, uh, when very quickly you saw this massive consensus of experts converge over the idea that the Arab Spring, the Arab revolutions, were devastating to the jihadist movement. Of course, it was exactly the opposite in terms of what the effect was. But that was almost immediately where people converged. It happened again after bin Laden died, and it happened again after ISIS split off from al-Qaeda with um, this very quick consensus view emerging that this was devastating to al-Qaeda as a movement. Now, that also has not proven to be true. So to me, what's happening is two things. One is you're increasingly seeing uh, political types try to push forward uh, narratives, shall we say, that enforce their view of the world divorced from policy. Uh, because you know, Ben Rhodes in, in this piece talked about how, in his view, uh, he wanted to prevent another war in the Middle East. 
The ironic thing, I think, by the way, is that um, by pushing forward this narrative of al-Qaeda defeat, he may have helped to precipitate another war in the Middle East, that being the Libya war. But let's leave that aside for a a second. Um, The second thing is, uh, in the last show, it was very interesting. I I went back to it and listened to it in advance of this one. And uh, Tom talked a lot about the way uh, our perception of expertise has evolved. And I think part of that is that the market for expertise doesn't really define what an expert does the way that we should. In the last show, we talked a lot and we debated about whether prediction is a part of what an expert should do, with uh, me falling on the side that prediction is important for an expert, Tom falling on the side that it's a bit less important. But if you look at what defines expert success, things like access to the White House, um, you know, access to subject matter expert contracts, um, these kinds of things are very much divorced from actual expertise And the more political types get involved in determining what our view of the world should be, the more experts will be in echo chamber and the more you'll be successful if you're in the echo chamber and unsuccessful if you're outside of the echo chamber, regardless of the value of your analysis. And uh, Can I just um, tack on a thought to that? Because I I agree with everything Dabib just said. We disagree slightly, I guess, about the issue of uh, prediction. I mean... Um, I think, unfortunately, prediction is something the public loves, uh, and and they tend to use that as a measure of success. Although David and I are both familiar with people like um, Bruce Bueno de Mesquita. I mean, he literally sells predictions to the government, which to me is crazy. But you know, that's something that's been going on for decades. That there are people who say, "Look, I can give you a an algorithm that will tell you, you know, whether Libya is going to fall," kind of stuff. But the, the, this issue of what the market for expertise that David just raised is really, really important because the public now, I think, no longer makes a distinction between experts and policymakers. They look at things, and of course, they only ever care when things go wrong. So they look at the Arab Spring or they look at the aftermath of the second Gulf War and they say, you guys got it wrong. You've got everybody, this whole kind of undifferentiated mass. In fact, Rhodes, to come back to to Rhodes in this, Rhodes refers to the foreign policy establishment as the blob. Well, that's the the deputy White House national security advisor shouldn't think of it that way. That's the way a guy, you know, in a pizzeria in Queens thinks about the foreign policy experience. That's not the way the White House national security advisor should think of it. But that's how people think of it now. And they don't realize that experts propose, experts explain, experts recommend, but we we don't dispose. In the end, policymakers, for their own reasons, do what they're going to do based on, sometimes based on our advice and sometimes directly contra our advice. But that is something the public doesn't understand. So basically, as David's pointing out, the market for expertise becomes deformed and warped into a generalized notion of success rather than kind of an ongoing record of hits and misses and, you know, overall uh, averages, which, by the way, we Phil Tetlock's book talks about maybe we ought to judge experts that way. What's kind of their overall track record? How How do they do over time? Give us a transparent look into their records. But people aren't interested in doing that. They're interested in knowing what did you predict? Did you get it right? 
Is everything going okay? And if it's not, then all of you guys are just stupid. And I think the name we haven't mentioned yet, that is a big part of the rise of people like Donald Trump. Let's look at that a bit, this concept of expert experts, excuse me, versus policymakers, because those are two very different sets of people with different goals. If the public, per se, has this warped idea of an expert versus a policymaker, how can we move the field of expertise back to what it is and get the general public to understand policymaker versus an expert? I'll, I'll take a quick hit at that and say, the public, first of all, none of this works. Nothing will change until the public pulls itself out of its own stubborn ignorance. Um, we can sit here and talk about how the, how we could improve this all day long. But as long as the public can't find Ukraine on a map, and the Washington Post, by the way, actually did a survey and realized that Americans cannot find Ukraine on a map, um, none of this will matter much. But I think one answer to that is to develop a greater tolerance for ambiguity, because as long as experts are called in simply to, you know, um, make a, a kind of coin toss, kind of, a, you know, like gamblers in a casino that you either walk in with money or you or you walk out with money, um, then we're never going to change that because then we just become kind of intellectual valets to policymakers who need to justify decisions that they've probably already made. And if that's, if that's the record that the public wants us to go on, then, then we're just going to end up politicizing our own expertise, which is exactly what happened in the Iran deal. Yeah. Uh, now, to the extent that Tom and I disagree, as, as he pointed out, there are uh, areas of degree and areas of emphasis uh, rather than there being a, a strong disagreement here. Uh, I preface that because I'm, I'm going to um, point to an area where, where we emphasize things a little bit differently. Uh, both in this discussion and, and also in the previous one, Tom has situated uh, a lot of the, the onus and a lot of the problem on the public. And I, I don't disagree with the problems that he points to with a public understanding. They're all correct. Uh, but I would start with government and the way government uses experts. Because when we talk about the market for experts, there's two different kinds of experts. And I think that um, at least in the sort of public sphere, quasi-policy world that we're talking about. Um, and there's the one set of expertise is government expertise. And I think that there is a crisis of expertise there. The other set of expertise is expertise that applies to the private sector. And my feeling is that in the for experts who work with the private sector, you both have uh, a, more, a somewhat more robust set of experts because the private sector is much more uh, easily able to judge experts based on results. And also there is more respect given from the public to experts who work with the private sector because they're more easily able to see that you know, X expert works with Y company and Y company has taken off and is now worth hundreds of millions of dollars. In terms of the government, you only have a single market and a general view throughout the public, which isn't at all unreasonable, that the government is failing. So when we look at the onus of where I would like to see change, I would like to see the government use experts better. And that's where we get into the, the book by Tetlock, which um, Tom mentioned offhand, that, that the book he's talking about is super forecasting. Um, and, and interesting, again, that Tetlock comes up in this discussion, because if you go back to our previous discussion a few years ago with Zach Beecham, we spent a while talking about Tetlock there. That was before his new book came out. And 
back when there was a much cruder view of Tetlock. Um, uh, you know, Tetlock was being used in that discussion to argue that there's not really a difference between experts and the public, which is not what Tetlock was saying. Yeah, the, I don't understand how that ever came up about Tetlock, that, uh, that everybody thinks that Tetlock said experts and uh, that are no better than chimps with darts. I mean, it's just not true. Right. And, and Tetlock, in, in super forecasting, he compares that to the telephone game where the, the message gets increasingly distorted. And look, par part of that, Tom, I think goes back to, I'm sure, a, an argument that you're going to make uh, with respect to in your book, which is that increasingly people are becoming reliant upon secondary sources or even third-hand sources, which does cause sources to get more and more uh, distorted as people get further from primary sources. I think that that's something which is extremely prevalent. Um, but anyway, in super forecasting, he, he argues that predictions... Um, you know, keeping track of predictive record is very important. Um, and I think part of the difference in emphasis uh, that, that Tom and I put on uh, the importance of prediction comes to where we are in terms of the sphere of expertise. Um, and and um, in the last show, uh, Tom and I agreed that a younger field is going to be a little bit sloppier in terms of expertise. The field that I'm in, uh, you can call it counterterrorism, I call it violent non-state actors, is, is a very young field. If you look at my track record over the past uh, five years, and I, I'm not saying this to toot my own horn, but to give some context, it's a very good track record. And it's not, it, it comes down to actually um, not having super predictive ability, but just having a different schema of what's going on. If you look at the primary schema, uh, the primary understanding of how Al-Qaeda functions, it's that it's barely a network. Um, it's that leadership barely has control over the organization. <laughs> It's largely autonomous. My view has been that it operates largely as a network. Now, if you look at predictions that I've placed down based upon that, they've all been against the market, and they've basically all come out right, starting with that the Arab Spring would not collapse al-Qaeda, that al-Qaeda would, in fact, benefit, uh, going to specific groups that were said to be aligned with the Islamic State, where I was able to diagnose that they were not. For example, Ansar al-Sharia in Tunisia, where I correctly said that the leadership was pro-AQ, and you had foot soldiers who were pro-IS, which created a problem within the organization, down to whether or not the Islamic State's rise would collapse al-Qaeda's network, which it has, which it has not. Uh, so the, the, the less you can see the thing that you're, de you're debating, and in the case of violent non-state actors, uh, they tend to be very covert in nature, clandestine, hard to see the entirety of them. So there's some guesswork that's built in. There, often it's predictions that will verify one model over another. So in that case, I think of predictions as being very important and predictive record, records as being very important in terms of explaining what the world is like. I think it's important to pay attention to what experts have said in that regard because um, the expert consensus has been wrong uh, an alarming amount in that area. I think it's in other fact, fields... Go, go ahead. I, I, I wanted to push back on a couple of things because one is... As you were talking about the value of expertise in um, private industry, one of the things I would argue is that that record of, you know, you either made money or you didn't make money um, is less tolerant of the real world problems of ambiguity that foreign policy faces. But even within the commercial model, um, I've got one word for you about that, and that's Theranos. Um, you know, here was a bunch of bright young things led by a 19-year-old who thought she was the next Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or whoever she thought she was, uh, was going to create this company out in Silicon Valley, Theranos, where they were going to, you know, they were the guys that had come outside of the expert consensus about blood testing. 
And she just rammed a multi-billion dollar company into the ground. Her net worth is now zero because she simply, she and her people simply could not accept the limits of their own expertise. And they were all the signals they were getting from the market were not that they were doing well as experts in management or medical science or anything else. It was simply a signal of greed to say, we think we're going to make money. Um, you're the horse, you know, you're the number four horse on the field, but we think you're going to pay off and here's all this money. And I think that the market can actually be outside of, you know, specific things uh, in the quarterly report kind of mentality that they have, the market can be horrendously wrong. If the mar- if, if prediction and expertise within markets were that good, um, GM in the 1980s would never have gotten rid of the Caprice. I mean, they would never have rammed a multi-billion dollar company in, in Detroit into the ground either. The other thing I wanted to point out was that... Let, let me help there for a second so that yeah. I can... Uh, respond to that, uh, just to, to clarify a little bit. I, I agree with you, of course, about the Theranos example and how it was run into the ground. Uh, obviously, uh, nobody can disagree with that. But I think that's not so much um, expertise as opposed to where the company, uh, you know, as opposed to a company that was horribly and uh, basically fraudulently managed. What I'm but talking that, about. But that, that was millions of people voting with dollars. Uh, on that model because somebody told them that it would work and they could, they had all kinds of pointy heads from all of the top, you know, research. Oh, she can do this. And yes, this is, you know, we've tested this and we've independently verified. And of course the thing that really stopped it all was real expertise saying you haven't done peer review. You're not submitting your um, uh, results for uh, validation by people who actually know what they're doing, but the but as far as the market was concerned, this was all top notch expertise, you know, creating a new paradigm in medical care. Sure, but to go back to what I was talking about when I when I defined expertise intersecting with this sphere, I was talking about um, expertise which you know, like mine and yours, uh, falls into the uh, quasi public policy sphere. Right. So, so the most comparable thing would be political risk analysis, which. I don't think of highly as a field. I think there's a lot of problems with it. I was simply making the point that the public, the the private sphere has a much easier way of measuring whether expertise um, is valuable than the government does. So for example, the work I did for uh, a client uh, was for an oil company in Africa. And they were considering pipeline investments in the way that a militant organization could affect their investments and what the trajectory of the militant organization was. They farmed this out, I believe, to multiple companies. What they can do is look at our predictions, look at our analysis of the situation on the ground, and directly compare that to others who also were giving them advice. And in that way, my point was simply that the market, the commercial market is more efficient and less broken than the government market, even though I agree that it's also imperfect. On that, I agree. And in fact, um I had a similar experience back before I worked in government about 25, 26 years ago where uh, I had a, I worked for a client uh, as a consultant who did exactly the same thing. Look, tell us what's going, we want to invest in this area. Tell us what the heck's going on. We don't understand who all these guys fighting is uh, fighting are. And I told them, and then that, whether they, where they went from that, I mean, I didn't then say, move your assets here, move your assets there. That I said, here's how it happened. And then they made a decision. And I agree that seemed much more streamlined than sitting around a table with a bunch of, you know, civil servants and government employees, you know, like me, um, sitting around and saying, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, 
because none of us, part of the problem with government expertise is that nobody ever gets fired, but nobody ever gets promoted. I mean, I'm being kind of making a crude cut at that. No matter whether you're right or wrong, life goes on. But I think that in some ways that's good. And the other example that I was going to bring in was to link the Iran deal, which is what brought us here and Ben Rhodes and the Iran deal to uh, Russia expertise, which was my field. Because one of the things that's driven me crazy Look, there's no doubt that Soviet experts and Russia experts have gotten a bunch of things wrong. I, in the in in this book I just wrote, I I copped to one of my biggest failures. I wrote a book about 20 years ago, where I was as wrong as wrong could be, and I had to just own it. Nonetheless, when people then say, "I'm not going to listen to you as a Russia guy because I think the Iran deal is just like the INF treaty or the SALT deal or some other Soviet treaty we did because that's my rationalization. It doesn't matter that I was wrong about a big call 20 years ago. I, I'm still enough of an expert to say, you're making a bad analogy. You're proceeding from bad information here. And that's what that's what really kind of slays me about this, what was your track record of prediction? Um, because it's whether or not I can predict the future, I'm still better at explaining the outlines of an arms deal than, you know, Ben Rhodes or most other people. And, and I think that the prediction issue becomes a kind of straw man or a cudgel that's used to dismiss expertise that people don't like the answers that, that people dismiss when they don't like the answers they're getting from the experts. And I, I think one group we have to move to on this are the experts that were involved in the Iran deal who really did, you know, go cross the line. I mean, we I've only mentioned it once, and I think I should mention it again, plowshares. I mean, in theory, plowshares is a nonpartisan group of experts. In reality, plowshares was a group of people that were, were actually trying to snuff out an expert debate. Um, because they wanted to use flawed analogies and poor information and all of the things that experts tell them not to do. And so, you know, that whole business about, well, you guys were wrong, you know, about the Cold War, you didn't predict the end of the Soviet Union or something. That to me is less relevant than do I actually know what I'm talking about in terms of seeing the lay of the land and explaining this problem. And I, and I think mixing those two things um, it, well, it just drives me crazy that people do it. But again, it's, it's, the, it's the simplest cut for people to make that makes them comfortable about whether you know what you're talking about. It's like, it's like saying that the guy at the racetrack who makes money betting on horses, you know, is a statistical genius. He's not. And you probably shouldn't use him as an investment counselor. Right. And so to start with, with your point about failed predictions as a gotcha, <clears throat> I agree with that. Um, you know, that that's part and parcel of the debate and the context that we're in today, where we have such crude metrics for understanding expertise that rather than looking at someone's ability to explain or ability to predict, they're going to look for something you got wrong and say, why should we ever take you seriously again, which is a standard they won't apply to their own quote unquote experts. That's the tendency within the public sphere. Exactly. I, I think that what we need uh, is something similar to what Tetlock advocates in super forecasting, which is um, I think that we need a, a more nuanced understanding of what failed or successful predictions mean. You know, a good example, it's something I, I've, I've looked to a lot because I'm a baseball fan, but also because we've seen such a revolution in how we understand baseball, is the rise of sabermetrics. 
Sabermetrics is um, a, an acronym referring to the uh, to a, a society for baseball research, um, where what Sabermetrics does is advanced statistical analysis to try to determine value uh, of players. Now, someone who's using sabermetric analysis, someone who's using advanced statistical methods, isn't going to get every free agent signing right. They'll get some free agent signings wrong. They'll miss value. Because ultimately, no no matter how compelling statistics are, um, what we know about baseball is still just the tip of the iceberg. But if you go back to when I was growing up as, as a baseball fan, you know, reading this obscure figure named Bill James, it was a game where people wouldn't go any further than batting average, home runs, RBIs. They put disproportionate value in certain statistics that really were team-dependent rather than individual-dependent, like looking at how many wins a pitcher would have as a metric of his value, where that's actually much more influenced by the team and not really by how good a season that he's having at all. So taking that and looking at, at the field of expertise... The statistics we look to, the things that we look to in determining whether an expert is good, are so incredibly crude that both both the, the public and also the government are having you know, a huge problem in, in defining the value of experts and defining what legitimate expertise is. And this should disturb us. I, when I love baseball your- is so much better at determining who's good at, at analysis than in areas that will determine life and death. We have a real problem. I, I love your example of um, the baseball metrics, by the way. I think that's such a that's that's about as perfect. And truthfully, if I understood baseball better, I would have put it in the book. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, to, to, to make an analogy to that, it's like uh, the way people treat doctors, you know. Well, that doctor, you know, this doctor, he got my sister's diagnosis wrong. She had bronchitis and he thought it was pneumonia or he thought it was a benign tumor and it was a malignant tumor. Okay. And if you fall down the stairs and break your leg and he shows up, are you going to say, you know what, uh, go call the, go call the, the, the person down the hall, not this doctor, because he got something wrong once. Of course, you're going to use that doctor because on balance, that guy is better than anybody else you're ever going to meet in that situation. Now, within that, I think the other place where people kind of go off the rails here is they confuse that kind of problem with choosing among experts to say, well, okay, fine. I don't distrust all doctors, but some doctors are better than others. And I think that's what, of course, Tetlock was trying to get to. It's what, what I've been trying to get to in the book. It's what you and I are sitting here talking about today. But but I would still go back to you have um, more. I think you're right. It's a difference of emphasis between us. You have more of an emphasis on the way the government kind of warps the market for expertise. I think that the government is the end result of a population that is simply too lazy, too uninformed, too willfully ignorant to judge the government by anything other than the crudest measures of expertise. Right there is a huge implication because as American citizens, we put a lot of faith in our government and the choices they make, especially on foreign policy and, and going back to the Iran deal and, of course, looking at Syria and airstrikes and so forth. And the idea that potentially the people that are making these huge decisions really don't have the expertise they should. I mean, if a lot of people knew about that, I feel like it would be mind-blowing to them. It would put a lot of distrust in, in decision-making, which is a huge thing to think about. I mean, so what do you do then? What do you do if they're not really utilizing 
I, I think there's a problem here, and I, I'd be interested to hear David talk about this as well. I think there's a problem here between, especially in America, between intelligence and strategic thinking and critical thinking on the one hand and operational excellence on the other. America has become overly professionalized or overly um, occupational in its obsession with operational excellence. That me- meaning, you know, can you move 5,000 guys from Norfolk to the Middle East in three days and do it effectively? What, that's, that's a particular kind of expertise. And when people say, look, I'm really good at my job, it means I'm really good at flying an airplane. I'm really good at moving troops around. I'm really good at, you know, filling out these kinds of orders. A different kind of expertise is why are you doing this? What are the various, you know, consequences of doing it? How do you think this problem through? Um, I work in, obviously I speak only for myself, but I work in military education. We don't spend a lot of time teaching them who, what, and where. We spend a lot of time talking about developing critical thinking, uh, counterfactual thinking. These are the things that make for long-term senior level expertise in thinking about the kind of problems that David and I wrestle with. The problem is America loves operational excellence. They like the people that can deliver results in 30 days, deliver your gold in 10 days or less, you know, the, the kind of short term, watch me, you know, hold my beer and watch me do this amazing thing kind of expertise rather than the more long term stuff. And I, I think that especially in foreign policy, especially in military and strategic affairs, being operational is the most important thing. A colleague of mine at the War College used to say um, years ago, look, if I were captured by terrorists, there's nobody I would want to come get me more than, you know, a Navy SEAL team. And Amer- American special forces, because they're the best at it and they're the best at what they do. The bigger question, though, is can the people above them in the national security bureaucracy know why to send those forces or where or how to deploy them? Uh, that's a whole different question. And I think that's the thing we're losing here. And I think that also relates to the whole obsession with prediction, because prediction is really, as, as David puts it, it's just a crude metric that mostly measures kind of operational stuff rather than long-term trends. And that's a great point because I do see our society going very much towards the trend. And it's been like this for a while of instant gratification on everything when it comes to food, um, fast internet, and so forth. We love everything just handed to us right away. It's great, but in an expertise environment you you can't do that and as you said predictions almost is this idea of instant gratification oh okay this expert says this is going to happen so great let's move on so david and he's either right or wrong right next week next week this coin toss will have gone one way or another and if it went my way he's a good expert and if it went the other way he's a bad expert and see that's a ridiculous thing to put on someone because a prediction is just that a prediction unless as david was mentioning you back it up with all kinds of statistical research and evidence and, and, and using the baseball analogy, that brings in a different type of expertise into a prediction that potentially makes it more viable to happen. But looking at all of this, let's hand this over to David now, because I really would like to hear his thoughts on what Tom just said. What Tom points to, operational expertise, is easier to measure. I think, you know, in addition to um, desire for instant gratification, or just that it's uh, 
generally speaking, cooler than the guy who's sitting there behind a desk trying to figure out the world. Um, we can actually measure whether people are good operators. I think that the, the disparagement of more strategic level expertise isn't irrational. As long as we have a market for strategic level expertise that is unable to determine the value of its experts. To me, the, the most important thing that we need to do uh, in terms of, of moving the marketplace for experts is come up with better ways that expertise can be evaluated. Because due to the lack of metrics, due to the lack of good metrics, um, as Tom has alluded to, people base which experts they like on their own political preferences. And that's not expertise. That's just looking for you know, some sort of a witch doctor who's going to verify that the course that you already are committed to is indeed the best course. That's not expertise. I mean, it's basically, look, to get back to Ben Rhodes, it's basically PR. Basically, your experts are an evolved PR firm, which uh, is verifying the information that you already gave to them and doing it in ways that make it seem credible. That's not expertise. And I'm not looking And that's what Rhodes admitted to doing, by the way. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So so to me, the the most fundamental thing, and this gets back to the where I emphasize prediction more, I see prediction as being uh, the best way uh, of seeing do experts actually are they actually understanding uh, the way that the world functions. And look, let me just concede uh, also what Tom said in terms of the problems with respect to prediction. This isn't entirely unproblematic, in part because um, trying to value expertise is itself a, a difficult thing to do. But ultimately, experts are important to government. Like, uh, Tom mentioned Trump. One reason I think uh, that, that a Trump presidency personally terrifies me is not uh, what he'd come into office committed to do it. Um, it's that uh, you know there's the temperament issue, which I don't need to go into. But beyond that, when you look at the figures that have solidified around a Trump campaign, um, you know the, the policy advisors, they're all people who are extraordinarily inexperienced. And so at the sign of a first crisis, I expect that they would not know what to do and that the way they handled the first crisis would be um, an utter mishandling by people who have not been in that situation before. And that's where we get into both the value of experience, but also the value of expertise in guiding you through to good decisions in difficult times. Uh, just a at a point about Trump, I mean, the only person on there who, has had, who would have any foreign policy experience at all is Paul Manafort. And I think we all, you know, understand what that means. Um, that's not really expertise. As you say, that's kind of glorified PR. Well, Michael My, Flynn also, right? Well, if, if Flynn is involved, I mean, that's a, that's a whole other question because he's been coy about that. That, you know, well, he, would, he says I would talk to anybody who asked for my advice. Whether he's on that team or not, I don't, I don't know. Um, my bigger concern about the issue of temperament um, with Trump does actually have a point about expertise, which is to be an effective expert, you have to be talking to somebody who will actually listen to you. I think another place where the public gets things wrong is to assume that anything that that policymakers are just this vessel by which we express our our desires or goals, and they don't realize that when we talk to policymakers, they don't always listen to us or they don't always take our advice or they only take it partially or they, you know, we're 
we have fights with them. I mean, I, I tell a story in um, the uh, an op-ed I just wrote a couple of days ago in the Daily News where, you know, my boss, my the senator I worked for, treated me with a lot of respect. And he, I was a trusted advisor during the first Gulf War. And yet he threw me out of his office in a hail of F-bombs one day because he just didn't want to hear what I was telling him and he disagreed with it. Um, that's a tough place for an expert to be. And the problem is if you're working with people who are coming into, the, as, as David points out, a crisis, and basically the price of admission to get in the room is agreeing with the boss already, then expertise is already dead right there. Then your expertise doesn't matter. You're just being asked to rationalize whatever it is the boss wants to do. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people, especially who come out of the business world, who think that that's exactly what experts are supposed to do. You're supposed to reverse engineer the boss's decision to get where he wants to be, which is the exact opposite of what experts are supposed to do. We're supposed to be people who come to the right conclusion or come to a reasonable conclusion without that kind of, um, I don't want to call it pressure, but without that kind of prejudgment about whether or not that's a good outcome. And I think the public makes exactly that prejudgment all the time. The, the one thing I was going to add is that when you talk about the issue of prediction, you know, the problem is that the public will ask a question like, will Assad use nuclear weapons? You know, you go on these um, like betting markets, right? Will Assad use nuclear weapons, or excuse me, chemical weapons before, you know, April 2016? And that's a yes or no bet. Then the question is, why would he use nuclear weapons? Well, that's no longer a prediction. That's a prediction wedded to a deeper explanation that requires area knowledge. And then the third tier is where the experts really come into play, which is if that were to happen, what should we do? Now you're totally, you're almost totally out of the realm of prediction and you're into developing a policy. At that point, people, people have already tuned out. They just want to know, you know, yes or no, uh, on or off, right or left. And, and I think that that short circuits a lot of that discussion. Think about how much of the Iran deal has centered around it's this or war, or it's this or Iran gets a nuclear weapon. These very binary kind of predictions of if it's not this way, it'll be this way. I, I was one of the people who said, I don't think actually Iran's going to develop a nuclear weapon anytime in the next few years. Um, and that the deal was unnecessary for that reason. Uh, but that's that again, that's, that doesn't grab headlines. It doesn't drive the debate. It can't drown out the echo chamber and the money that it, that was spread around to, to be to create that echo chamber. And so, you know, I, I guess I bristle when people say, well, you experts just don't seem to get to be very good at this. When my answer is, look, if you if you're always asking me to tell you what you want to hear, then by definition, nobody's good at this. Just so you gentlemen know, we have about 10 minutes because Tom does have a schedule that he needs to be on, so I just wanted to give you a time frame. So considering all of this and the debate about expertise, the maybe lack of understanding when it comes to expertise, where does that leave us? What potentially, if we're going to do predictions, can we do to bring expertise back to what it really is in both the government sector, the public sector? Now we'll see which one of us is the bigger pessimist. <laughs> well, uh, I'll let you take the pessimistic route and I'll provide some prescriptions. Uh, what I think um, some, some en enterprising young person who has the time could do is actually start to create that betting 
betting market for experts. Go back over predictions uh, where you have concrete predictions or concrete uh, explanations about parts of how the world work and see who is right and start to construct a record uh, on a variety of issues, just looking at areas where experts in the public sphere disagreed and construct what the record is. That's number one. So it's like a politifact, um, but where you're actually taking time to go back and see who is right. Um, the second thing, look, the, the area where I'm sure Tom will be pessimistic and where I'm somewhat pessimistic uh, is actually fixing the market space for expertise. I think that it's much better in the private sphere than in the governmental sphere. When you look at government contracting rules and their inefficiency and the nonsensical way in which this Byzantine infrastructure is constructed, you have a lot of problems. But I think ultimately the way that the government contracts and, and um, purchases expertise is not sustainable. I think at some point it will be forced to change. And I think that those of us who care about government getting good advice and functioning in a reasonable way should be pushing for the government to make changes necessary to streamline contracting rules and to be able to contract more on the basis of desired expertise and track record um, rather than the ridiculous uh, variety of systems that they have in place right now, which tends to uh, just take contracts and put them in the hands of big contractors who, who they know are going to cost too much and not do a very good job. Final thing I'll say is that um, we've talked about the rise of Trump um, and other uh, anti-government political uh, movements uh, during the course of this discussion. Ultimately, if those who are, are mainstream in their political beliefs want to have someone who represents them who is in the White House, um, making sure that people see that the government is working reasonably well is very important. If we continue to have this charade of expertise that currently exists, then we'll have what Tom is talking about uh, just multiply, which is the death of expertise. People just don't trust any of you because they see that things basically aren't working. As I've said a couple of times, that's not an irrational view. So for those of us who actually care about knowledge and care about expertise, making sure that the market for expertise and pushing the market for expertise forward is very important. Um, well, uh, I'm not going to disagree with you about the you know government contracting system. And I would even add, it's not just a Byzantine system that produces contracts for the biggest players. It produces contracts for people who are going to tell, tell the, the contracting authority what they already want to hear. Yes. I mean, we don't re we don't do red teaming, which I, which I actually we used to. I, I was actually part of a red team cell back in the '80s during the Cold War, working on some nuclear stuff. Where you know our job was to figure out what was wrong with everything the government was doing, which was kind of cool. Um, but I, I think we don't do that as much as we should because if you find a real flaw, um, and, and I remember this actually happening about 30 years ago, you know, where we found some really serious objections, and the answer was. Well, thank you for your interest in the national defense. We don't want to hear that again. Um, but the reason I'm pessimistic about David's point is that whole, you know, creating a, a kind of prediction market and keeping track. Tedlock, you know, Tedlock talks about this as well. And I think, and actually, Andy Basevich has made the same argument, but with the conclusion that all of us should be fired and driven from public life. Um, but the problem is, as Tetlock himself points out, and as I point out repeatedly, if people don't care enough to learn anything, none of this will matter. You know, David, you, you made the point of saying, well, they look and they see that things aren't working. I take issue with that. People don't know enough to know whether things aren't working. Ask the average person, average American believes 
that 25% of the U.S. budget is given to foreign aid. Now, as I'm sure the three of us in this conversation know, the actual number is less than 1%. It's about a half of 1%. Now, how do you deal with people who say, the government's all messed up and you foreign policy experts are nuts because you're giving 25% of the budget to foreign aid? The answer is you can't. You can't deal with that until people are willing to sit down and say, you know, I just don't know enough about this and maybe I ought to read a newspaper. So I'm pessimistic, as is Tetlock, by the way. And David, you're talking about the current book. I go back to the previous book on, um, on prediction where he says, you know, I, I have all these ideas. He says, but if, the go- if people just want their team to win uh, and they want experts that are simple and accessible and give them black and white answers – he kind of admits, well, none of my recommendations will work either. And I think that's the world we're in. I, I think, you know, having gone through several iterations, I mean, there's a reason I wrote the book, right? I mean, I w- I've been arguing with people for years, not just in the age of social media, but going back to the Cold War, about Russia, about nuclear weapons, about um, secrecy and foreign policy, the whole Snowden business. It's impossible to have discussions with people who say, not only don't I trust experts, but I know better than them and what I know is right. And if you tell me I'm wrong, it will infuriate me. And I don't know how to get around that. That's a, that's a kind of social dysfunction of kind of mass narcissism that really undermines expertise in every field. And, and I, I'm not sure that that's going to be cured any time in my lifetime. Um, but, you know, I, I think David's right. An enterprising young person who wants to take this on there's a bright future there ahead for somebody if they can figure out how to do it. I, I'm not sure I know how to do it other than to kind of shake my fist from the balcony like the old Muppets up there, you know, uh, talking about how much this show sucks. But but I'm, I, I've identified a problem. I'm not sure I can identify a solution because I think it's bigger and a, and a bigger social problem than we were comfortable even really wanting to believe. Well, I'm completely confident that this talk and this subject matter will continue on for a while about expertise and and how to deal with all these issues that we've discussed. But because of time constraints, we're going to end it here and potentially maybe down the line we'll have another one of these discussions. But thank you so much for coming on the show, Tom and David. This has been really stimulating and I'm sure our listeners will probably want to get in on the discussion as well. Thank you. Great joining you.